everyone, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Anirudh Singh. Our guest today is Greg Chavay, CEO of Exani. Exani was founded in 2013 with the goal of overhauling global capital markets infrastructure. That vision has become a reality through intensive technology development and deep collaboration with the world's leading financial institutions. Greg is a repeat entrepreneur and drives Exani's strategic execution. He previously co-founded TradeBlock and worked as a fixed income analyst at Citigroup. Greg holds a bachelor's degree from Cornell University where he studied finance. In this episode, we discuss Greg's introduction to Bitcoin, the benefits of blockchain technology, public versus private blockchains, and much more. Hope you enjoy the show. So hi, Greg, and thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Uh, it's an honor to have you on here. How are you doing? Uh, where are you calling in from? I'm doing well. I'm calling in from New York City. Great. It looks like you're in the office right now, uh, so love to see it. Let's just jump right into it. Uh, for listeners who might not know, could you provide a quick overview of your career to date and how you became involved in financial services and in fintech? Sure. I started my career out of college as a fixed income analyst at City. Did that for a few years, learned quite a bit there, and I ended up leaving when I was about 24 to start working in tech. I briefly tried to build out a payment software company. It was kind of going okay. Um, and then um, incidentally, Bitcoin, which, which my brother Jeff and I had been interested in for a very long time, started to see some public attention. Um, and we shifted a lot of our, our energy towards that and started our, our first company together, uh, which is called TradeBlock. Got it. And I think uh, I had another ep- a guest on that was started their career at City. So it seems like they're churning out a few entrepreneurs there, which is pretty cool. It's a big um, company. Yeah, that's also true. Yeah. Uh, can you talk a little bit about your introduction to blockchain and how you went from learn, you know, initially learning about the technology to uh, eventually starting Axani? Sure. So the, uh, the, my, my first introduction to digital currencies really um, was Bitcoin in probably 2011. Uh, my brother, Jeff, who is our CTO now, now and our, our co-founder, uh, he had originally gotten me interested in it. He was mining at the time. You could do it with GPUs. Um, we are many, many years past the point where that was ever possible. And him explaining to me how he was more or less I mean, making money in an almost literal sense uh, was, was pretty interesting. And then it just became a rabbit hole that he and I spent quite a bit of time and, and energy on. Then in, uh, in 2013 or so, we started blogging about Exxon, or excuse me, about uh, cryptocurrencies. And uh, it really became popular very quickly. So my, my job at City when I was there, you know, I used to write fixed income market updates for Fortune 500 CFOs and treasurers and things like that. So very institutional sort of view on things. And then uh, Jeff's, Jeff's previous role was at Raytheon. He was the engineering lead in their strategy group there. So very analytical, but tech-oriented view on things. And so we were publishing on this blog called the Genesis Block. And we were doing, within a few months, we were doing half a million hits a month kind of thing. It was just really going gangbusters. And we just, we couldn't pump out enough, enough content for people. So we just started spending more and more and more time on that. That turned into, eventually, we, we sold some research reports. Um, we just, we were doing like quarterly reports. Those, those started selling quite a bit. Um, it's funny too, because we were charging, I think we were charging one Bitcoin at the time, which is probably like 100 bucks, 50 bucks, something like that. And which is like crazy cheap, even for the content that it was. Uh, but you know, yeah, a little, little different now. Uh, it was funny too because we hadn't yet fully set up a, a business. We're like, wait, we have a quarterly report coming out. We need to set up like a company and a merchant processing account. And all. I'm like, wait, wait, hold on. Why don't we just take Bitcoin? 
Um, so that, that actually turned out to be a lot easier. What was interesting about that, though, is we saw there were some big... We would look at the email addresses of the people that would order the reports, and we were seeing some big company names, like people ordering it from their you know, corporate email addresses. And we're like, okay, there's some real companies looking at this stuff. That turned into also then people asking us... We had We had built a bunch of tools to plug into exchanges, query the Bitcoin blockchain, organize the data, build a lot of charts and things like that. And people were like, where did you get this data? And we're like, we just started scraping it. And they're like, can I have data? Would you sell us data? And we're like, I will definitely sell you some data. Um, and that sort of turned into data feeds products. It turned into a whole institutional trading platform for crypto. And then that kind of evolved more and more into working with the underlying technology uh, for more core banking type transactions. Yeah, I think most early adopters of Bitcoin have some kind of horror story of, of uh, spending it uh, on something that was uh, not quite what it's worth now. Um, but I'm sure I'm sure it's it's gone well for you. I would love to no, hear I, a little bit. I've, I've lost and given away more more Bitcoin <laughs> than I care to think about. Yeah. Um, just before we dive, dive deeper into what Ani is working on, um, I would love to hear how, what it's like uh, co-founding a company with your brother. It seems like you have a great relationship. Yeah, it's great. I mean, we've, you know, we've been working together for close to a decade now. We have a lot of overlapping skills, but also a lot of um, unique things that we bring. So even when I was at City, I was building you know, software that was used by a lot of their analysts at the, on the desk and things like that. And then, you know, not, not production quality stuff, but basically just automating our jobs. And then, uh, you know, Jeff's job was very strategic. Uh, he started as an engineer, moved into the strategy group. So, you know, of the Venn diagram, there's a lot of overlap, which makes it so that we can really communicate well with each other, but also bring our unique value to what we're doing. And you hinted a bit about Exani kind of using the underlying blockchain technology uh, to offer products with clients, but would love to hear kind of the, the full suite of what Exani is offering right now. Uh, and what problems you were you saw in the marketplace that you were hoping to solve with the company? Yeah, sure. So the crux of it is really that you know historically up to up to this point, the world of capital markets infrastructure is just basically this massive web of proprietary systems processing highly complex and high volume data. So naturally, those processes break all the time as those systems try to communicate with each other. There are all these you know very bespoke hops, and then you have to you know there could be. 10 different databases that have to touch a, a single trade or do different processes, or, or may, honestly, many more than that. So that leads to a, just a massive amounts of cost and risk as things end up breaking and, and not working properly. And then that cost and risk can come from something as simple as not agreeing on how much money is owed between two parties and having to spend just countless human hours trying to reach an agreement to slow times for settlement of payment and securities. So when you scale that to the markets we're in with trillions of dollars worth of assets flowing through them, you realize quickly how valuable a good solution is. So our platform offers clients the ability to have provably accurate data automatically synchronized between them and their counterparties, clients, service providers. And for the first time, coordination with the rest of the industry is a foundational priority for financial infrastructure. So it's, it's ultimately the evolution of a market that has needed something like this for many, many years. And can you talk a little bit about, uh, you mentioned the market needing a product like this for many years, just fundamentally, what advantages does using blockchain technology offer you that, that doesn't exist in existing technologies or technologies that existed before it? Yeah, there, I mean, there are many. I will try to name the, the top top ones. And yeah, I think the, the first one that comes to mind is definitely just automated guaranteed accuracy of your data, right? So the way that computers have historically communicated with each other is you have a copy of something right? And you have, you have your interpretation that lives in your database. If you want to send that to me, you turn that into, you know, you take whatever's in your database schema, you turn that into some either other file, an API representation, a fixed message, whatever it might be. 
and then you send it to me and I store it the way that I want to store it and do my own representation of it. So just between us transferring, just between two parties transferring a single piece of data, there's three representations right now. Again, scale that and it becomes, it becomes huge. So what this technology offers is automatic byte-for-byte replication across all the parties that need to see that information. And that just happens as a just foundational concept that's automatically handled by the software. So rather than multiple representations leading to multiple interpretations, you end up with a, a single provably accurate uh, underlying data set, uh, as well as a provably accurate interpretation on top of that as well. So that, that's one. Uh, the second is definitely comes to mind is you have this immutable audit trail of everything that's happened. So you can easily understand how you got from state A to state B. And a lot of times in legacy infrastructure, that gets totally lost. Everybody's trying to do it on their own. You might be over overwriting things as you're changing state without keeping a record of what happened. So now you can see and prove between two parties exactly how you got there. So in the world of institutional finance, that is huge, particularly when it comes to accounting, regulatory reporting, those, those sorts of things. You have to be able to see what actually happened. I would definitely also note there's a, you know, there's a massive shift through this technology to a standardization of infrastructure and data crossles. Uh, data, excuse me, and data models across many different assets. So you had these different independent proprietary systems that were meant to handle all these things at all these different firms. And now it's not only the same at different firms, but across different asset classes or processes within those firms, you have a, a universal piece of infrastructure. So the banks that we're working with are now building internal expertise on our technology and coordinating what used to be these disparate teams managing siloed infrastructure towards common standards and operational efficiencies across all of them. I can keep going, but I don't know how much time we have in this podcast. <laughs> no, that, that's great. And diving a little bit deeper into the same question, can you talk a little bit about the trade-offs between a uh, private permission blockchain like you're offering versus something that's public and permissionless, uh, like, for example, Ethereum? Sure. Public and private blockchains each have their their benefits and their, their trade-offs. So um, you know, what's interesting is I think we're one of the few companies that is deeply experienced in both. So having run a public crypto company and you know been in that space for a, a very, very long time, and now the leading provider of private ledgers for capital markets, we sort of have this unique vantage point. So yeah, I'd, I'd probably break it down like this, is that uh, in permissioned blockchain networks, you can offer a level of comfort with security, privacy, compliance, uh, and efficiency that are possible when all the parties have to be authorized into the network. So this is incredibly important for major financial institutions who have strict rules, both internal and regulatory, about where their data goes, who they can transact with, th- those sorts of things. Conversely, public networks have the benefit of letting anybody in the world access them and transact. And the ability to launch an application and serve anyone in the world is just a profoundly beautiful thing. I think most people would agree with that for all of its risks. Um, so, you know, the, the public networks offer you, you know, even though you don't know everybody, they offer you the protection of a codified set of rules that dictate how those unknown parties can interact with each other. The downside, of course, being that there's little to no recourse if that doesn't go well. And that has obviously happened many times. And for, for, many, for many parties and particularly large entities, um, they, they have a hard time getting their heads around the idea of, okay, if the code doesn't work, I still need a legal system to protect me. And I can't do that if my counterparty is an unknown person, right? So that, that can be a little tough. But I think I think really most importantly, like if I could, you know, if I could leave one thesis that we have as as part of this is that we are firmly of the view that the line between public and private is going to become ever more blurry uh, until it effectively doesn't exist. And the world isn't quite there now, but it's approaching it much faster than most people probably appreciate at this point. So when you first started your answer, I was almost thinking that a private blockchain is almost the traditional financial services company's competitive response to 
some of the capabilities that DeFi companies are bringing to the table. But then you said that the lines between public and private are going to start to blur. Um, and so that makes me think maybe you disagree with that first statement. Can you just expand on that last point a little bit? Sure. So let, let me use an analogy that people might be more familiar with rather than try to explain the nuances of, of this tech. But so right now, like a lot of people aren't aware, but most of the the you know institutional financial system is run over a bunch of private networks, right? You have direct connectivity, whether it's to exchanges, you have private connectivity to counterparties through lease lines and other sorts of private networks. There's there's entire networks out there that people aren't aware of that are not the internet, um, through which you know you have to get you know a lot of times it it is onboarding and somebody physically has to plug in your box to somebody else's box, th- those kind of things, right? So. That layer of security and comfort offers um, it offers efficiency, it offers security, um, and and a lot of those things are very helpful for you know moving the types of value that people are moving through those types of networks. That said, on the edges of those networks, the average consumer has the ability to access certain pieces of it through the internet. You can go to your bank, your checking account online, your bank's website, and you're not moving money. What you're doing is you're you're sending a web app an instruction to move something through an entirely separate network, right? And that works for the most part, but you're not actually touching money. You're touching a, a series of layer of obligations and technical systems that will eventually move money somewhere else, right? So I, I think we're going to end up seeing something that looks a lot like that. Like most people right now would be like, oh, I can send you dollars over the internet. Not exactly, but we're, you know, I think we're going to end up in a similar situation where there will be the ability to service, act on, maybe interact with assets um, through other sorts of layers and, and other sorts of applications um, with a lot of protections around the core movement of those those assets, um, perhaps in, in places that offer more, more privacy and security. That's actually a very helpful analogy. So thank you for that. Just zooming out a little bit and, and thinking about blockchain industry overall, uh, I believe the company was founded in 2014. Blockchain is still a relatively new technology, but it was even more new at the time. Uh, what has it been like growing the company as the term has become uh, more popularized and, and uh, has kind of generated some fanfare? Uh, it's been an interesting transition, that's for sure. Uh, we, you know, when we started the company, the first, I mean, well, when we started the originally the blog and like the research reports and data products and stuff, you know, we actually we were pseudonymous. We didn't we use pen names on the blog because we didn't know the, the regulatory environment around it was just so questionable at the time, right? And you know, we weren't we were just writing information, data analysis, stuff but like. Like, let's just hold on a sec before we go putting our names on everything. Um, eventually, those pseudonyms started getting quoted in the press and, I mean, literally in the congressional record and things like that. So we're like, okay, I think we should probably use our real names at some point. So it moved from sort of this fringe sort of network. I mean, the only places it was really being talked about when we started in this industry was on like internet forums and things like that. That has eventually, you know, as we started Trade Block and we were, you know, starting to interact with the very first institutions that were trading in the space. Uh, you know, we started to um, really use a lot of those same tools we'd picked up, right? The, the blog was largely explaining to people what was going on in the market, giving an opinion about it, translating it for for people um, in ways that they could understand it. We use a lot of those same skills to help people understand how this technology can benefit them, how it works, those those sorts of things. In the early days, um, you know, particularly of, of TradeBlock and, and certainly of Axani, we were doing a lot of education. So help people understand how it impacts their business or could impact their business. Um, and occasionally we would come across pockets of super knowledgeable individuals who clearly had spent their own time on, on this stuff and helped shepherd us through those processes at large institutions. As the market has evolved and our products have become more widely adopted, the core functionality tends to be more of a foundational assumption rather than a primary focus. So the client conversations now are less of a deep interrogation of the core technology and instead much more focused on 
business benefits, creative new ways to use the software, those sorts of things. Have you found that people still kind of misconstrue or equate cryptocurrencies and blockchain, or is that kind of past with the clients that you're looking at? Not in our market. Um, mm-hmm. I think you know there there is something to be said about in the public space. The two are tightly linked because the without going too far on a tangent, right? The 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 crypto, the native tokens themselves enforce the security of the network, and there's there's ways that those economic models work out to to make the network function. It's different in the space, so you can you can decouple them. Mm-hmm. But in our world now, people are pretty educated, and by the time we're going in there, I mean most of the largest banks have installed our products, onboarded onto one of our networks, so it's it's a lot less of those conversations at this point. Yeah. Any major lessons learned from growing the company and uh, selling a relatively new technology? Well, I mean, selling our technology is the same as selling anything else. So, you know, a lot of people think pitching is convincing people of something, but selling is really more about listening. So you can build something they really want or ideally need, like really can't live without. So, yeah, you just really have to generally understand the problems you're trying to solve in order to build an effective solution. So we try to absorb as much information as possible, build products, reflect those realities, and then just show people what we've built. So and I think that's just a generic sort of sales thesis. Yeah, and looking forward, um, just curious how you hope to uh, have the company grow. Uh, are you looking at you know other use cases for uh, the like, enterprise blockchain use cases? Yeah, I mean, we're pretty focused on uh, institutional finance at this point. So it's a it's a market that we really understand very well and have have done a good job of really building up, I think, a lot of credibility in that space. So we have a lot of repeat customers. We have a lot of you know repeat sales to the to those customers. And then also so much of what we're building on networks. So what we get a core group of users, they're pretty ambitious to introduce us to their counterparties, introduce us to their clients. They want more people on the network. So we've leveraged a lot of those relationships and a lot of that credibility to more and more things. So uh, but I think for right now, we're, we're pretty focused on that. That said, um, it's, a, you know, it's a pretty generalized technology at the end of the day. The platform itself, does it inherently is not inherently unique to finance. It just um, it's the place that desperately needs what we're offering. But you know, in terms of what's ahead, we now offer products in half a dozen different financial markets. Uh, we're rapidly driving towards standardization across all of them. So I think there's going to be some really cool things that come out of the sort of next generation of this, which is going to be the way that the banks um, sort of co-manages across all all the different things that they're doing. There's going to be a whole second layer of, of efficiencies here. We've also expanded our geographic footprint quite a bit. So we have clients across the globe at this point. Um, We're planning to open our first international office this year. Um, And then underpinning it all of it is just a really rapid evolution of the core tech. So we we continue to iterate, innovate, um, and and scale it at a a pace that I've been very impressed by. Yeah, that sounds incredible. Congratulations. And continuing to zoom out a bit, I'm just curious what major trends uh, you're especially watching in the fintech industry overall. Uh, trends that you think will be will play out pretty well over the next, say, three to five years? Yeah, uh, I definitely think the genuine adoption of crypto within financial institutions is going to be going to become a reality. Uh, it tends to be very client-driven, um, which means it's definitely very trading and a lot of times price-driven. But we're now seeing um, real firms have take real interest in this. So I think the services that are provided around that is something that I've I thought it was going to come a while ago, and maybe I'm still being a bit ambitious. But I, I genuinely believe that you know next three to five years we're going to see quite a bit more of that. And the work that we're doing is a big step for many of these firms because building familiarity with the technology in a way that directly applies to their business today, I think, is very helpful. As just a you know, crypto diehard myself for a very long time, you know, I, I can't help but you know, continue to, to hope that this can expand to more and more people. 
just curious about your perspective on enterprise adoption of blockchain technology, whether in financial services or in other industries. Are there any use cases that you think are kind of almost low-hanging fruit that you think this technology is perfectly suited for? For one, I would say that things like Bitcoin should not be overlooked, right? It is an, it is an alternative supranational store of value. It provides an international mechanism for payment rails and transaction of value, right? So that alone seems <laughs> seems like something the enterprises really need to get their head around and, and, and realize that with all the complexities of our current economic system and you know government influence on things that are happening, they should probably be taking a serious look at that, right? So even for all the stuff we're doing, I'm, I'm still infatuated with with Bitcoin, um, and you know even even some of the things that have come after that. So there's that the on blockchain itself, on, in terms of the way that we we deploy it for core infrastructure. Probably the most complex part about it is organizing industries around it and trying to drive behavioral change, drive multilateral infrastructure updates simultaneously. Those are complicated things to do. So you know, the, the financial industry happens to be uniquely experienced at working together on driving those types of solutions. You know, I'm less convinced that hospitals are as good at coordinating with each other or something like that, even though it could be a, a huge application for things like medical records or something else like that. Um, you know, this industry has, you know, I think, really pushed the boundaries of the te- of the technology, both because of the need and their experience of, you know, competitors having to work together to try to solve these kind of problems. And on the flip side of the the last two questions I asked, uh, curious if there's any subsectors of fintech that you're a little bit bearish on or that you find a little bit overhyped right now. Um, it's an interesting question. Well, I'll put it this way: a lot of industries that are promising at their core, a lot of weird things happen with those very promising core bits, right? So you know, in the early days of Bitcoin, I remember having to defend that it was more than just a way for people to transact to buy drugs on the internet, right? And we're like, trust me, it's this whole distributed payment system. And, you know, and like, um, you know, some people were open to the conversation. Some people, it was just the way people buy drugs, right? So I want to preface this by saying, you know, if I identify something in this conversation, I, you know, I probably recognize that there's, there's some underlying benefits there. But I would definitely always be skeptical of financial products or services that look too good to be true. Uh, it's just an old adage that's been since the dawn of time. Yeah, it's probably something you should be careful of. And I, there's a lot of pretty sketchy yield opportunities in the DeFi space that trap newcomers looking to make a quick buck. So I definitely keep an eye out for that. I also have some real questions about the NFT market. I think there's undoubtedly a powerful concept in having provably unique digital assets. I will I will firmly stand behind that concept. But I do wonder if some of the high price sales we're seeing are fully legitimate. That's probably a whole other conversation. Yeah. I'll offer one more for you and get your perspective on it, which is a lot of people that are deep into crypto or DeFi will say that that space will eventually eat uh, traditional finance or eat banking. and or, or, or people just in fintech will say that banking's bank will become uh, irrelevant. But it doesn't seem like you fit into that bucket at all. It seems like you think that the partnership between traditional banks, fintechs, and DeFi is where the industry is headed. Is that fair? Yeah, they'll continue to blend, right? So much much the same way that I expect that you know Bitcoin will be some part of the you know consumer banking system and hopefully commercial banking system and wholesale banking system. I mean, one way or another, all of a sudden those lines become blurred, right? And I, I do expect that we'll start to see, you know, there's always going to be institutions that are interacting in any given market. So even in the DeFi space, there are already institutional financial firms that are trading in it, lending in it, those kind of things. And these are firms that have regulatory compliance and, you know, all sorts of things like that, that they have to do and, you know, auditability. And they might be a bit on the edge of, of regulatory compliance, but, you know, they're going to force those conversations. The industry will adapt. And, you know, the, again, what we're going to see is that, you know, as those do become blurred, what does a bank look like 30 years from now could be quite different. But 
I don't think the concept of banks are going away. Um, and I, I don't think DeFi is going away either. And they'll, they'll continue to find ways to interact. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, I had uh, Nathan McCauley from Anchorage Digital on, I recorded his podcast a few weeks ago. A very similar answer in terms of blending. So definitely seeing a trend there. Greg, the last thing I wanted to do today was just ask you a few rapid fire questions to uh, help the audience get to know you a little bit better. Hoping to get answers here in 10 seconds or less. Uh, ready to go? Okay, let's do it. Let's do it. Uh, what is a fun fact about you that most people don't know? I really love cooking. Uh, with the number of dinner parties I host, it's like I run a small restaurant out of my apartment. That's that's great. Any, yeah. Any particular dish or cuisine? I'm a steak and potatoes kind of guy, but I try to read the room, see who's coming over. <laughs> love it. Uh, what was the last show you binge watched? Interesting question. At the moment, most of my binging is podcasts. I'm a huge mm-hmm. history buff, and I'm currently plowing my way through a Civil War podcast series. That's good. Um, I never hundreds of hours of content. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. I've never gotten deep into a history podcast for fear that I uh, will will not be able to come back out. So uh, maybe I'll do it someday soon. What are you looking forward to most in 2022? Face to face interactions with my coworkers. <laughs> we have an amazing yeah. team filled with really bright, motivated people. And I've, I've come to respect a lot of them just through the 2D screens that we interact with currently. And I think there's going to be a whole other level of enjoyment I'm going to get out of these people once we're yeah. back in person. Yeah, I always find it funny to see who is significantly taller or significantly shorter <laughs> than I originally expected based off the uh, 2D interaction. What is your favorite question to ask someone in an interview? Oh, so I would tell you my favorite, but it's really, really good. And I like asking people when they're not prepared for it, but I will, okay. I'll give you my second favorite. Okay. Um, we always ask people to provide an anecdote about a time in their lives when they've embodied one of our company values. Mm. And we've gotten some really profound, like touching and emotional and insightful responses to that one. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, last question for you. Uh, and you can take a little bit longer on this if you'd like. What does success look like for you and Exani? That's easy. It's transformative change. So we see it happening incrementally every day. But if you project forward what we're doing by 3, 10, 20 years, it's clear that the whole world is going to look profoundly different for the better. Yeah, I love it. Uh, And I think that's probably a pretty good place to wrap it up for today, uh, Greg. So thank you so much for joining us on the show. Uh, It's great to get to talk to you and pick your brain about blockchain and and crypto and DeFi and everything you're working on. So uh, thank you so much. And I wish you luck uh, going forward. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. It means a lot and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our FinTech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Medium, and Twitter at Wharton FinTech. There you will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. I would also like to thank our editor, Raphael Austria, for his incredible work on our episodes. Signing off, I'm your host, Anirudh Singh.